It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who want to know what the business protein is. This is also the podcast for people who want to be the Karen they wish to see in the world. That's right. Making Karen a good thing again. <laughs> How have you been? Um, I've been okay. It's been all right. Okay. I am all done with distance learning. Right. I am okay. so tired of it. Yeah. Um, and I used to teach. And mm-hmm. I would rather have like my worst classroom full of 14-year-old awful kids. Mm-hmm. Um, who, on whom I used to raise the th- thermostat a little bit so that they would get drowsy. <laughs> okay, yeah. Not even kidding. Um, then do this distance learning with the on- the people I made myself. Yeah, you know it's challenging, and I think people are really coming to learn that you know this month that i think people that might have said like oh how difficult can it be or how can it be hard to be a stay-at-home parent and that kind <laughs> of stuff are coming into sharp relief with the yeah. reality of being home all the time and it's not easy it's not and i was a stay-at-home mom for 10 years yeah and i was so happy to get to go back to work yeah and sure. um I mean, I love my kids. They're great. They make me laugh every day. They're wonderful. I just, it's a lot. Well, and also teaching. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, teaching is not something that is easy to do without training. It's just not. And so I hope everybody comes out of this with a better appreciation of teachers in general and also a better understanding of how it's not easy at all to teach your own children even if they're good learners even if they do well in school teaching your own children even if you're a good teacher teaching your oh it's an entirely different dynamic when it's your own family so true so yeah um everybody's learning lessons about my two biggest things Mm -hmm. and that's public health and education actually my three because the third one is mental health so everyone's learning lessons about those right now um (laughs) And they're all going to turn into the the Karens that we need. Very good. Right? <laughs> Not the I, Karens I, we deserve. Before we do around the web, mm-hmm. I have to ask you what you've been binge watching. Um. So, oh, I'll tell you what. Mm-hmm. We just went in on getting BritBox. Okay. Oh. BritBox is the Netflix for British television. Mm-hmm. And we uh we're watching i believe it is pronounced migre which is the it's a murder mystery with the f- a french chief of police or mm-hmm. a chief investigator played by of all people this is a very serious crime drama that is played by of all people rowan atkinson of mr bean fame and oh my gosh in a very serious role and he does it very well um so we're watching some of that. That's a limited series. But now I'm going to dive into, for the first time, I'm going to, I've decided since we're investing in BritBox to fill in one of my major geek gaps. And I'm going to start from the earliest Doctor Who episodes mm-hmm. and start working my way through them. I've only watched a little bit of, like, two episodes max of Doctor Who before. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going all in on Doctor Who. 
You and my husband. <laughs> We're still doing Homeland. Oh, yeah. Is that, what, is that the main one that you're binge watching right now? Yeah, my husband and okay. I are binging that together. I Although I call it Carrie Makes Bad Choices because I keep saying, oh, that's a bad choice, Carrie. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> That sounds like us watching Outlander. <laughs> oh, Claire. <laughs> what are you doing now, Claire? I know. I guess that's all TV, right? The, yeah. Just a series of bad choices that you're like, oh, that was a bad choice. <laughs> well, let's do Around the Web. Why don't okay. you um, get us started? Uh, sure. So I'm going to, I, I suppose in the spirit of Doctor Who, I'm going to uh, fiddle with time a bit. I'm going to promote something that hasn't been written yet, and that's because I'm going to be writing it. I'm, write, I'm working on a blog post uh, about the reasons to uh, stay up to date with immunizations during the pandemic. And so I'm going to sum it up for all the listeners so that you can at least hear the quick hits. Um, there are four reasons that I came up with just off the top of my head. I'm sure that there are others, but the four that jumped out at me the most as to why people should stay up to date with their vaccines, especially kids, and keeping in mind that both the American Academy of Pediatrics and CDC prioritize infant well-child checks with vaccines as important reasons to continue to go to the doctor, even though we are um, rescheduling and delaying some other kinds of visits and well-child checks. The ones that get vaccines, especially young children, are the most important. And for four reasons, four main reasons I can think of. Number one, uh, some of these vaccines actually may help prevent complications of of uh, excuse me, COVID-19, because complications from COVID-19 include things like pneumonia and sepsis and other things that some vaccines actually help reduce, vaccines like the pneumococcal vaccine, for example. Um, Number two, just preventing co-occurring infections. So if you don't want to get COVID-19, you don't want to get whooping cough, you sure as heck don't want to get them both at the same time. All right. And then also helping reduce the burden on the healthcare system. If you think about the fact that we're trying to flatten this curve, the main point of trying to flatten the curve of trying to social distance and do all this stuff is so that we can, although this virus is going to spread, people are going to get it. We want to make sure that you, we get it at a rate that hospitals can keep up. We can also help do that by keeping other things out of the hospital. And one of the ways that we do that is with immunizations. We don't want people in the hospital for um, pneumonia, meningitis, uh, other bad diseases because they're not getting their vaccines. And the fourth one is, of course, the one that you know, you've know you tweeted about and put social media stuff up about that people think about is we don't want to have outbreaks after this. So once we get through uh, the pandemic, which is going to take a long time, longer than I think most people realize, uh, we do not want on the tail end of that or during it or after it to be hit with you know, more measles than even we saw last year or outbreaks of new diseases that we not not new new, but diseases that we thought had been uh, eliminated from the United States. So talk to your families, uh, talk to your kids, doctors, talk to your doctor, find out about the safe ways to stay up to date with vaccines and what their recommendations are during this time. And check out the blog post that hopefully will be done by the time this goes to print uh, on my blog, pedsgeekmd.com. Yeah, check the show notes for that um, link, apparently. I I also want to mention that uh, 
efforts, global polio eradication efforts have been mm-hmm. suspended right now. Yes. And, you know, measles vaccination efforts as part of the measles and rubella initiative to eliminate or to eradicate measles and rubella, uh, those have been, I don't know if they've been suspended, but a lot of efforts have been halted at this time. And so we are going to see on a global level increases in measles and rubella and polio and I imagine other diseases after COVID-19 is done just because we have millions of children who aren't receiving their their vaccines globally. I would have felt nervous saying that in January mm-hmm. that people would hear that and be like, oh, that's Afghanistan and that's, you know, Nigeria, whatever. But now people understand how global viruses are that they do travel as we are seeing with uh, COVID-19 right now. And we also know that we've got parents who are like, you know what, maybe I can just wait a few months for my kid's vaccine. Hmm. And so the uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the DRC, did see measles, out- measles spike after their Ebola outbreak had kind of waned a little bit. Mm-hmm. And eventually more than twice as many people in the DRC died from measles than died of Ebola. And so it's really something to be very serious about that when your doctor calls and says, I'd like you to come in and get your vaccines that you should. And I just know that doctors are going to extraordinary lengths to -hmm. make parents feel safe and comfortable doing that. And they really should. I, I can't imagine a safer place to be right now with your baby than a pediatrician's office. Yep. I've got a video up on Facebook and on our Blank Children's Hospital page talking about all the things that we're doing to keep families safe, and virtually every pediatrician is doing the same things, finding ways to get, uh, you know, seeing the, the symptomatic people in certain places and certain times a day, the way that we're disinfecting and using masks and face shields and all of this stuff. Um, we're really doing everything that we can, and it's all the more reason why you know every every doctor's office is going to be a little bit different in terms of what they want to do and you should talk to your doctor's office or your child's doctor's office before and find out what their plan is if they want you to come in if they don't but if they do then that's a really good thing to do because get staying up to date with your shots is very important during this time it's very important and it's very important for global health mm-hmm. not just your own individual health or your community health I'm going to add that as a fifth point on my blog. Woohoo! If everyone hearing that knows it's it's a Karen thing. That's a Karen. My around the web is kind of sad. There was a hashtag trending last week, film your hospital, where people would go to hospitals and they would film how empty the parking lot was or they'd go inside and say see there's nobody here it's all a hoax there's there's no coronavirus or it's not as big of a deal as they're saying you know it's government control blah 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 um and there's a lot of reasons why that idea is misguided first of all a lot of elective procedures are not happening right now so you're not going to see a ton of people in the in the general areas of the hospital and secondly you're not going to the ICU right now 
<laughs> there's there's no ICU just letting you walk in to film it. So you're not seeing that being filmed from people. And thirdly, people aren't being allowed to visit. So the parking lots are going to be empty. And I think those are the three main points that really drive home how film your hospital is a, a fool's errand. Yeah, and, and it's not just elective procedures. It's it's everything that is not urgent right now. And uh, yeah, absolutely, you can be at a hospital and it kind of seems uh, quiet because the bulk of what goes on in a hospital is a lot of this other the other things, not the ICU. And so it can be extremely busy uh, and lots of awful things can be happening in one part of the hospital. That doesn't mean the whole hospital looks away. It's also going to be geographically uh, different depending on where you are. There's not COVID everywhere, but every hospital is trying to pretty much is trying to limit non-essential visits to help flatten the curve. So it's just, and, and let me guess, do you think that there's some overlap with the people that are doing this and uh, the anti-vaccine movement, Karen? Well, that is actually what I was going to bring up. Thank you for helping me segue. Oh, my I was interviewed for Undark magazine for an article written in there and one of the questions that i was asked was sort of about how are the anti-vaxxers responding to this and they're responding in the fashion that we would imagine they would respond there's a lot of denial and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of conspiracy theories being floated yeah it's interesting how basically like social distancing is being treated like a vaccine to the anti-vaccine mm-hmm. movement. They're feeling the same way about it and right. not wanting to do it. And the risks of not doing it are similar to the risks of not vaccinating. Right. And the and because they can't really see that in their bubble, like the direct impact at this point, they're kind of treating it like, oh, well, my unvaccinated child is fine. Therefore, everything's fine. And I went out in public, didn't wear a mask and it's fine. So therefore it's fine to promote this. It's, it's, it's eerily similar. The interesting thing, too, speaking of similar, is that this whole personal freedom parental rights thing is cutting the same way. So I'm seeing all of these um, state legislators across the country who are on the vaccine issue, you know, pro personal freedom, and maybe some of them are anti-vaccine, too. Those are the ones who are also anti-stay-at-home orders and, you know, anti uh this being a real thing <laughs> sort of think thinking mm-hmm. it's it's so interesting i had really hoped that there would be a lesson learned from some people or that some people would learn a lesson about public health through this real life exercise we're doing but it seems that the these ideas are so deeply part of these people's identities that it's easier to deny the reality than to change their minds about public health well and again you have this another parallel with vaccines which is that if it works if Mm -hmm. all of our measures work people think it wasn't a big deal in the first place. We don't have our TARDIS to go to different, I don't know if this is how TARDISes work, I haven't watched the show yet, (laughs) to go to different timelines and see this is what would have happened if we had done no social distancing. This is what would have happened if we, when we did do social distancing, this is what happens without a vaccine, this is what happens with a vaccine. If we could do that, uh, that would be far more illuminating uh, than this, you know, only being able to perceive one timeline thing that we're stuck with. See, I feel like we do have that, though, because you've got 
say, for example, Minnesota, which has been social distancing and stay-at-home yeah. orders and has a very low incidence per capita of the disease. And then next door, you have South Dakota that has one of the largest mm-hmm. hotspots per capita in Sioux Falls in the meatpacking plant there, which yep. is going to stop you from getting your bacon in a couple of weeks. And so, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, point. it's there. It's just that people don't want to see they don't want to believe what they're seeing you know they don't they'd rather data hmm. they, they'd they rather know. believe the conspiracy theories than their own lying eyes <laughs> well i'm still hopeful that there's going to be a lesson at the end of this so i mean this is something that whether or not it's going to change certain minds of certain legislators and we have some legislators like that in iowa too uh i think overall i'm hopeful that the value of public health and kind of mm-hmm. by association the value of vaccines is going to be better appreciated once we come through this see i keep having this conversation with people and i feel like i'm the only person who disagrees and maybe it's because of the living outside my bubble in the vaccine world that mm-hmm. i'm doing i do think that maybe people who hadn't prioritized public health but believed right. in it will yeah. begin prioritizing it mm-hmm. but as far as changing people's minds about vaccines i actually think this might make things worse i think what you might see is some people who are maybe libertarian leaning Mm -hmm. being starting to listen to some of these anti-vaccine leaders who are speaking their language right now and will keep following them afterwards and becoming anti-vaccine so i actually am honestly and genuinely concerned that there's going to be more vaccine refusal at the end of this that is a fair concern and i suppose all we can do is keep doing our part to spread good information like what is coming up exactly and so that's a great segue as well when we come back from the very brief break we are going to listen We're going to interview, actually. We're not just going to listen. We're going to interview Stanley Plotkin, who is amazing and kind and generous and also incredibly smart. I'm sure that we're going to ask great questions, and he's going to give really, really good answers. See you there. We are now joined by Dr. Stanley Plotkin. Stanley is the father of fully vaccinated children and had a significant role in bringing us rubella and rotavirus vaccines and is a general hero of public health and vaccines in general. So thank you for joining us, Stanley, and welcome. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And especially right now when everyone is hoping for a new vaccine, which is something we don't often see. Uh, Another thing I don't often see is cable news being taken over by faces that I know and recognize um, because public health is not often top of mind. But here we are today um, talking about um, COVID-19 and coronavirus vaccines. And I know that you have been consulting on some of that work. Uh, 
So before I ask the first question, do you want to just tell us sort of what kind of help that you've, you've been able to give up to this point in that development? So uh, as we will discuss, uh, this is not a routine situation. Obviously, there is urgency in developing a vaccine. And one of the things that I'm trying to do, as we can discuss, uh, is to accelerate the process. Um, the, the other point is that we have to choose carefully what the uh, targets of a vaccine will be. Because uh, w with any organism, any virus, there are several uh, possible targets and we have to be careful to choose the, the right ones. Uh, and then, of course, there is the problem of producing enough vaccines. We're talking about uh, not a, a localized need. We're talking about a worldwide need, which would mean uh, if, uh, if everybody were to take the vaccine, uh, would would need seven billion doses, and if the vaccine requires more than one dose, perhaps fourteen billion doses. So uh, this is something that we have not faced before. It's true. And before we talk about those things, which are super important, I want to talk about routine vaccines. So the vaccines that are on the CDC schedule for adults and children. How is that process, how does that process usually work? And I'll say too that you produced some videos that I'm going to link to in the show notes, but just generally speaking, how do we test and approve uh, routine vaccines? Well, the first step is the recognition of um, a public health problem. And so inevitably, uh, researchers respond to uh, the identification of a public health problem uh, with ways to deal with it. And of course, vaccines are one of the important ways to deal with uh, a new epidemic or, or a new virus or a new bacteria that appears on, on the scene. So um, it is uh, fortunately inevitable that basic scientists start to work on uh, learning as much as possible about the organism uh, and uh, in the back of their minds of, of course is prevention. So after studying the, uh, the new organism, uh, by studying I mean to uh, take it apart to, dis to determine what it's doing uh, in the body uh, and what kind of immune responses is it producing. Uh, after that, which takes, often takes years of work, uh, people begin to think about how to make a vaccine. So th the first steps are to uh, choose the possible targets on the organism, on the new uh, virus, let's say, uh, and to, uh, to immunize animals with parts, let's say, parts of the virus, and to determine 
uh, which animals or, or or animals given which part uh, of the virus are protected and after considerable considerable study of um, the new agent in animals uh, is then they then propose to a company that can produce vaccines uh, to make uh, let's say a part of the virus uh, to, to make it in large quantity and to make it very carefully so that it can be tested in humans and that begins a long process in itself that is testing in a small number of humans to make sure that it doesn't harm them uh, and then expanding the tests looking at what kind of immune responses are produced so going from let's say 50 people to several hundred people and then if everything goes well and often it it does not that is to say that uh, one finds that what you thought was a good vaccine uh, is not protecting or is not inducing the right responses but if Fortunately, it does look good. You then go to a very large trial involving thousands of people. And in that trial, uh, randomly, some of them are given the vaccine, some of them are given a placebo, and then one follows uh, both uh, groups of people uh, in the presence of the circulating organism uh, and you you follow them and see which ones get infected uh, and um, whether there are any reactions that you didn't know about before and after all of that one has to go to the licensing authorities and present the data and they will always have questions and uh, the, the manufacturers have to answer those questions and eventually a vaccine gets licensed. Now the bottom line is that this process normally takes five or six years not counting the research at the beginning. So that's the way it's usually done and as perhaps we can discuss, the question is how to shorten that process for the new coronavirus. With a routine vaccine, with this long process that it takes from basically idea to approval to being produced, how many roughly do you think of, of, of vaccines that begin this process actually make it to the end? Well, there are actually good data on that, and uh, the maximum that um, uh, people have calculated is uh, 20%, and some people think it's less than that. But, or let's take the 20% figure. So that means that four out of five um, proposed vaccines never make it to the market because uh, they don't protect as well or because they, they cause too much reactions. Which does bring us to the question of a coronavirus vaccine. 
how are they fast tracking this right now? Because, you know, we're hearing it could be a year to a year and a half before a vaccine comes out and the general public thinks, wow, that's a long time. But those of us who know how long it takes for a vaccine to actually be developed and tested and approved, that feels like lightning speed. So what are they doing to fast track that process? Well, so everybody, of course, wants a vaccine as soon as possible. Uh, now, uh, the, one of the complications here, of course, is that uh, SARS-2, the name of the virus, is a new virus. And so nobody had seen it uh, before late uh, in 2019. And therefore, the, the basic research on that virus uh, had not been done because it, it didn't exist. Uh, of course, there there uh, there were data uh, determined from the first SARS virus uh, and also from other coronaviruses. So there was some basic information. Nevertheless, pretty much researchers had to start from scratch, and so we are in fact still learning about the, the the virus what it does and and um, what are the important parts of the virus with regard to uh, protection but of course the scientific community realizes that a vaccine is desperately needed so everyone is thinking about how to uh, uh, abbreviate or to speed up the the process uh, so what has happened is that there are uh, at least, and I'm probably out of date, but there are at least 40 um, institutions trying to develop uh, a vaccine against SARS-2. And they are taking, uh, using different strategies. And, and that's great. Uh, indeed, when I first started way back when, uh, there were only a few strategies that you could use to make a vaccine. But now we have many more strategies, which is, which is fortunate. And so uh, when I say that there are 40-odd projects, they're, they're not, um, well, some of them are similar, but many of them are, are quite different, using uh, uh, new strategies to develop a vaccine. For example... Uh, using the genetic information from the SARS-2 virus to uh, plug into people and uh, to allow the genetic information to produce proteins that would then immunize uh, the person who has been injected. Um, so a lot of work is being done. And in the interest of speeding things up, uh, what is essentially being done is people are manufacturing uh, potential vaccines at the same time as they're testing them. In other words, without knowing whether they're going to work or, or not. Uh, and so the idea now is to uh, immunize a relatively small number of people and if the responses look good 
to rush into testing in larger numbers of people uh, and to, uh, to produce a material that could be used in large-scale vaccination later on. But that's production at risk. And uh, uh, people should recognize that companies are taking risks uh, to try to develop a vaccine uh, more, more rapidly. And um, uh, incidentally, as I mentioned before, the, the large number of doses that will be needed means that there has to be a mobilization of the vaccine industry. In other words, the manufacturers have to collaborate all over the world uh, to produce uh, enough vaccine to immunize everyone who needs it. That's sort of head spinning to me <laughs> to think about all that work being done and all of the risk being assumed by, you know, evil big pharma, as people like to think of it, but really to by people who have such a, a mission in public health to to risk in order to save lives. Um, but I, I do have a question about the way that these vaccines are being made. Some of the ways that we know about how vaccines are made are familiar, such as taking a surface protein or weakening a virus so that it can't spread in your body. But one question I have is about this RNA vaccine. I don't know that I've ever heard of an RNA vaccine before. I'm not sure what that is. Um, I could be wrong if we've done that before, but can you just very basically explain that to me, a non-scientist? As I think probably everyone realizes, uh, all organisms, whether they're viruses or human beings, have genetic material. In other words, uh, they are, they contain uh, genes that, that account for their uh, characteristics, whether it's uh, their size or uh, the color of their eyes or wh whatever. Uh, in, uh, in humans and of course other uh, animals, uh, the material uh, that it, the genes are coded by DNA. Uh, and uh, that's, I think, a familiar concept uh, to, to people. Uh, however, when you get into the smaller organisms, the more ancient organisms, uh, they may have genes coded with DNA uh, or with RNA. Now, RNA in, in humans or in, let's say, in, in animals in general, uh, RNA is produced from the DNA. So um, in our cells, uh, there are, there, in every cell, there is DNA and the DNA is producing RNA, the RNA is producing proteins and the proteins are going hither and yon to do whatever they are uh, created to, to do. Uh, viruses are simpler in the sense that they, they, uh, their genetic material 
It may be DNA, but it may be also uh, RNA. And the world of viruses is generally divided between DNA viruses and RNA viruses. Uh, it so happens that coronaviruses are RNA viruses. But, but anyway, the, um, the, the point is that uh, you can use the genetic information, whether it be DNA or RNA, ultimately to produce proteins. And the, the proteins for vaccines that you're interested in are the ones that uh, induce a response in the body that is protective. So uh, in the case of coronavirus, which as I said, uh, those are RNA viruses, uh, you take the RNA that codes for one of the proteins, and we can come back to that, uh, of the virus, and you use that uh, RNA to inject, and the RNA will uh, produce the protein that you want in the body of the vaccinated individual, and the, the individual will respond, as he or she does to any foreign protein, with antibodies. And those antibodies, one hopes, uh, will be protective against the, the organism itself from invading the body later in life after uh, immunization has taken place. So again, the point is to use genetic information to produce a protein of the virus, which is then... Um, uh, uh, when, it, when it's present in the body, arouses the body to induce a protective response. And that protective response is uh, what one hopes will uh, protect the individual from a later uh, infection by the same virus. So between the fast tracking that we're trying to do, because this is an urgent public health need, and these new techniques and the risks that are being assumed by companies, how can we be sure that this, the, this pro whatever process is used to make the COVID-19 vaccine, how can we be sure that it provides a vaccine that's safe and that works? Okay, so that of course is a question that applies to all vaccines. And the answer is simply this, that in order for a company to sell a vaccine, it has to have a license. That license comes in the US from the FDA. There is a parallel organization in Europe. And in most countries in the world, there are regulatory bodies uh, like the FDA uh, uh, and uh, the WHO plays an important role as well in that they also approve uh, vaccines, which is important for developing countries because uh, they don't have uh, an organization, a huge organization like the FDA. So uh, what the FDA does is they look at the data that are submitted by the manufacturer. And the data include, as I said before, 
the results of vaccination of thousands of people, uh, the results of the manufacture, that is, uh, what are the steps in the manufacture, how are they, have they, how have they been shown to be reproducible every time, uh, all those data have to be carefully examined before the um, uh, the licensing authority will give a license. Uh, let me give you one, one example, which is a, a recent one and somewhat atypical in the sense of how fast it went. But you may recall that in Africa, there was a huge epidemic of Ebola disease uh, and then actually a subsequent epidemic in another part of, of Africa. Well, when the uh, epidemic uh, started, fortunately, there had been a lot of basic research on Ebola virus, and therefore it was possible for, in this case, the, the Merck um, laboratories uh, to take one of the vaccines that had been developed in biotechs and to produce it in large quantity. Uh, and they uh, started to make the, the vaccine uh, and 10 months later it was possible to test the vaccine in Africa and the results of those uh, tests, that test was really excellent. That is, the vaccine showed a very high degree of protection. Uh, okay, so uh, the vaccine had proven itself right? But it took then three more years before the vaccine was licensed. And that's because the FDA required that all the I's be dotted, all the T's be crossed. And even though it was obvious to people like me that the vaccine was a good vaccine, as I just said, it took several years for FDA to agree to a license which gives you an idea of how difficult it is to get a license. Do we have an idea um, on how long we might expect immunity to uh, this coronavirus to last with the vaccines that are being developed? Or is that pretty much something that we have to find out later on in the process here? Well, that's a, uh, a good and important question and the answer as you just suggested, is we really don't know, and we're going to have to see. Um, there, you know, are different opinions, but opinions don't count. It's the facts that count, and so we we have to uh, wait and see. There's uh, a division of opinion, if you will, but uh, once we have vaccines, of course, people uh, will follow the vaccinated individuals uh, to determine just how long immunity does last. You and I talked really briefly before about uh, evidence somewhere that the virus is mutating. And I, I have to say the evidence is basically, I saw a news article that said the virus might be mutating. So I don't, <laughs> who knows if that's, the evidence is real, but it, is it mutating? And if it does, what does that mean for vaccine production right now? Well, you know, people have to understand 
that the virus is replicating. That is, it, it is constantly uh, making more of itself. And uh, in that process, uh, whatever the virus, there is always variation. I mean, there also are, there always are uh, mutations that occurs sort of randomly, uh, but uh, most of the, the vast majority of those mutations don't change the uh, biological activity of the protein that they're coding for. So to my knowledge, and of course knowledge is accumulating rapidly, and um, uh, I don't know what's going on in every laboratory in the world, but uh, my understanding at the moment is that sure, um, SARS-2 does uh, uh, have mutations just like any other virus, but that so far there hasn't been a change that would obviate the possibility of making a vaccine against the, if you will, the generic SARS-2 virus that, that would work. In other words, that there haven't been uh, changes sufficient to, um, uh, to change important proteins of the virus. That's very helpful for understanding sort of the mutation process because we hear mutation and it just sounds scary. Um, another scary thing I read, that's, I get to ask all the, I read these scary thing questions because Nathan is the pediatrician and doesn't do the scary reading I do. Uh, <laughs> but another scary thing I read um, is about the um, SARS-1 coronavirus vaccine that had been developed years ago, that there was some evidence in animal studies that they would vaccinate the animals and then they would um, test the virus um, with those animals and they would actually be sicker than the animals who hadn't been vaccinated. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of thinking sort of Sound, sounds almost like a dengue um, virus issue. And do we know if that is a coronavirus problem in general? Should we be worried about that right now? Or are there better ways of making a vaccine that could prevent something like that? Well, so that's a complicated question in that, uh, uh, as I mentioned before, in the development of a, of a vaccine, people are always looking for um, problems uh, as well as success. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when you work in animals, there are all kinds of phenomena that occur that you have to carefully examine and determine just how relevant that they are. So. Uh, I would say that at the moment everyone is aware of the possibility that um, that among the immune reactions that occur that there could be so-called enhancing uh, antibodies. But I would say that the evidence for that is incomplete, uh, uncertain, uh, and uh, possibly uh, can be gotten around, if it exists, by choosing uh, or selecting the protein that you use in the vaccine uh, such that it doesn't elicit 
any kind of, of response like that. Uh, to be a little uh, more precise, um, the, the, the business protein of the SARS-2 virus uh, is uh, something called the spike protein. Now, the spike protein, like all proteins, has different parts to it. And there are uh, important parts in terms of producing responses that protect. And there are parts that don't seem to have any value. Well, so by tailoring the spike protein that you use, in other words, whether you use parts of it uh, or the whole thing, um, uh, you can try to elicit the reactions, the responses that you want, but not the responses that you don't want. So, you know, we're all aware of the possibilities that there could be um, parts of the virus that you don't want in a vaccine. And so people making vaccines are going to look for responses that are, um, if you will, n negative responses. And uh, so I, I, I am, what shall I say, cautiously optimistic that we can avoid uh, any such difficulties by focusing on the right parts of uh, the, the SARS spike protein. That's good news. <laughs> I'm going to take your optimism. And, you know, that's really actually all of your explanation really helps ease my mind about that quite a bit. So thank you for that. So the real question I think everybody wants to know is how fast can we get this done? Is there a way to accelerate it to get this vaccine out? So I would answer that question in two ways. Uh, first, to say that we can't go too fast because the, the worst thing that could happen would be to put out a vaccine that doesn't work or that causes harm. So uh, all of us are conscious that we have to be absolutely certain of safety and efficacy. But there is one step which I am advocating, which, about which there's a lot of disagreement, which is normal, uh, and that is the use of human challenge experiments. Um, uh, we're going to publish this uh, shortly, uh, but and actually another group has already published a paper along these lines. But the idea is that uh, one uh, enrolls volunteers, well-informed young people, volunteers, uh, who would receive a vaccine and then be challenged with the SARS-2 virus. Now, the, um, uh, from the point of view of, of safety, as I said, one would select young, healthy individuals. One would be able to treat them with antivirals uh, as soon as, or if they became uh, positive for the virus. Uh, but 
the idea would be to show that at an early stage that a particular vaccine or vaccines uh, are effective. Uh, and by showing that, you could then accelerate the production of the vaccines shown to be uh, effective in those early studies. And you could confirm that they are effective by doing large field studies, but you would get the vaccine into use faster than by the usual uh, steps that we take in going from phases one to two to three. Now, um, obviously, there is disagreement uh, about this idea. My co-author is a well-known ethicist, uh, Arthur Kaplan, and this idea is not a, a you know astonishing idea. It's been used before with uh, other agents, uh, even uh, an agent like cholera. Uh, but of course, there will be risk, and the volunteers would have to be to have uh, the explanation of what the risks are and be willing to accept those risks. And of course, uh, treatment would have to be available uh, at the first sign that they had uh, been uh, infected. Uh, but uh, the idea here, obviously, is to accelerate the process so that a, an effective vaccine could be brought to public use sooner than it would by the ordinary steps. And I, and I should mention, as a number of people have said uh, in public, that it's unlikely in the normal way of things that we would have vaccine to use before uh, early uh, in 2021. That sounds really interesting, and I'm hoping you'll send me that paper so that when it's published, I can add it to the show notes, uh, at, <laughs> even if people have to come back and see the show notes later. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us today, Stanley. Uh, oh, you're welcome. It's always good talking to you, and thank you everyone at home for listening. My name is Karen Ernst. I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, General Pediatrician here at Blank Jones Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. Find me at my blog, pedsgeekmd.com, and also on Twitter and Facebook. And that's a wrap. That's a wrap.